families to kind of help welcome me into redemption. I've been here three and a half years. Uh, Jake was actually the first person that I baptized here at Redemption Arcadia. And uh, he was a freshman at Veritas at that time. He's now graduated from Veritas. And what we're doing today is Jake is actually representing. Uh, we had uh, nine or ten uh, high school seniors graduate uh, this last spring from high school and are now preparing to move on to either college or they've started their careers. And so this last week over at the Pulos house, we had um, uh, all of us gathered, the, the people who were graduating and, and their parents, and, and we had just a, about a, a two-hour time of food and, and of prayer for these uh, graduating seniors and their new endeavors and their transition into their new endeavors and, and also praying for the parents as well. Uh, Jake is not the first one that Allison and Sean have sent off, but uh, I know it uh, for, for a fact from experience that it never gets any easier, and so um, they're sending off, or Jake has decided to leave, one of the two. Anyway, so uh, Jake, tell us um, where are you going, and what are you going to be studying, and what are you going to be doing? Jake is representing our graduating seniors here this morning, and we're trying to honor them. So I'm uh, going to Biola University, which is in La Mirada, California. It's about 20 minutes from Huntington Beach. I'm taking a major in physics, a minor in Bible studies, a minor in military science, and I will be also doing Army ROTC. So it sounds like you're going to be pretty busy. Very busy. Okay, tell, tell us just a little bit about what your father does. That might help us understand uh, your uh, direction. He was a naval test pilot, and now he's retired, and he's a test pilot for Boeing. So um, you have a little bit of that in your DNA, yeah. right? Well, Army and Navy are enemies. So oh, I'm that's actually, true, yes. I'm doing it despite This is him. one of the things I love about Jake. He doesn't let me get away with anything, I'm telling you. Now, here's another thing about you, Jake, and this is one of the things that I really admire about you. You have always served the church. Uh, when I got here, you were already, you shook your ass, yeah, see, like, whatever, okay. Jake's got an issue that I'll bring up later. Anyway, um, you have always served the church, and, and about a month after you guys started here at Redemption, uh, you started serving the church how? I uh, work in children's ministries with the toddlers. So in first service, he called it children's services. I thought that was fun. Um, <laughs> so you work in children's ministries, and you've been down there essentially every Sunday for the last four years. Uh, tell us something. What have you learned serving the church in that way in, in children's ministry? Probably the most important thing I've learned is that um, how important it is to be patient with the people you love, because I really love working with all the kids down there. I'm I'm basically them, but bigger, and I can read. Um, but <clears throat> excuse me. But they can be very ridiculous sometimes, and they will do things just to like spite me, or they'll be playing with a toy, and then another kid wants to play with it, and they're like, "You can't play with it." I'm like, "Here, have this toy." And they're like, "No, I don't." It's just ridiculous. So just being patient with them and not getting angry or aggravated because that's really what they want from me. They want me to be angry with them. And I feel like that's also good in life when dealing with non-believers that they're trying to get you angry. They want to see you break. But if you just love them and be patient with them, it works out. <laughs> Serving down there is translated to yes. like big people life because yeah. we're all just sort of little people in big people's bodies. Basically. It seems like, yeah. That's what I've noticed. So, that's awesome. Uh, we talk all the time, and I'm going to even talk about it in, in the message today, about the importance of humility and being humble. And, and that is really critical. But uh, one of the things about Jake, and he hates me for even bringing him up here in the first place, and now I'm going to say this. Jake is one of the most humble people I've ever met, almost to a fault, because I also get reports and have been getting reports for the last three years 
from downstairs that the kids actually really love him. And I've been trying to explain to Jake that one of the reasons they like to aggravate him is that we, we tend to aggravate those we love the most, amen? You know, and so it, it, they really do love him. And, and uh, you have been, uh, Linda has described you as, when we talk about the backbone of children's ministry, you're, you're a big part of that. There, there's a big hole to fill, but we're also celebrating with you that you're moving on to a new stage in your life and that you're going out and that's going to be really exciting. And so we thank you for your service. We thank you that... Uh, for what you've done. Now, you, by the way, um, about three years ago, we started downstairs with the Gospel Project, taking the, the children through the entire Bible in three years, and that's finishing what? Next Sunday, is it? That we're finishing I think it's it up? like two Sundays from in now. In two Sundays yeah. from now, we're finishing that. So Jake's been there almost for because you're leaving next week. So well, I'm th- leaving Thursday. Th- this week, Thursday. So see, he doesn't let me get away with anything. So. <laughs> So he's seen that whole uh, cycle. By the way, we're going to start going through the works of Shakespeare downstairs after that. <laughs> Done the bio- no, I'm kidding. We're going to start the whole thing over again. But again, we thank you. We thank you for also allowing us to invite you to represent the entire uh, graduating class. And now I want to just pray for you as, as uh, we send you out, okay? Uh, Lord God, again, we thank you for Jake. And we thank you for how uh, even at a very young age, uh, you, you placed a call in his heart and, and you equipped him. And he responded and came in faith. God, thank you for his witness and his testimony. Uh, Thank you for his humility and his humor. Thank you for his character. And God, we uh, just pray now for his strength and your blessing uh, as as, uh, he is going to uh, the Los Angeles area to go to school. Pray that he would continue to be light and salt in in this world. Uh, And that he would engage Uh, people who don't believe the way he does, and that he would engage them with patience and love and with a serving attitude. God, imbibe him with that, we pray. And God, we also pray for all of the others who have graduated now high school and who are moving on, and they're in a big transition in their life, whether it's it's moving on to a university or leaving town or or starting their career, whatever that might be. We just lift them up, and we thank you for for how you've molded them, how you've saved them, how you've converted their heart, and how you're in the process of transforming their mind by the word of God. God, thank you for that. And we pray that they would be light and salt also. God, we love you and we praise you and we just confess to you that we are utterly hopeless without you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, man. Appreciate you. All right, I'm going to ask you to stand one last time for the reading of God's word as Mark comes. The reading is from Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 52. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, for it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. 
And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And when Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Mark. Uh, We are continuing through the gospel of Mark, and we have, as you saw in the text today, um, two very different requests and two very different responses to these requests by Jesus. And and I think it's interesting, as I've uh, heard and listened and read other preachers go through Uh, the Gospel of Mark, generally they split these two and and deal with these two texts on different Sundays. But in Luke Simmons' wisdom, Luke is uh, the the lead pastor of our Gateway uh, Redemption Congregation, and he's the leader of our preaching collective. Uh, He he saw that it would be good to combine these two and compare and contrast these two requests and these two responses from Jesus because we're going to be able to learn a lot from that. And and the way I look at this, I I think the, the big idea could really be boiled down to just a few words. And here's the big idea as you start to contrast these two narratives, and that is that insight is more important than eyesight. Another way you could say it is that insight is better than eyesight. It's not that we don't want to have eyesight. That's not it at all. But insight is so much more important than that. Uh, But what we need to do before we actually get into those two texts is we need to go back and read the three verses before that text that uh, I asked Mark to read uh, because um, we didn't deal with that last week and, and and the reason is because it really helps to set up what's going on with James and John today and, and gives us a little bit of a contrast in what they're thinking. Uh, in these verses 32 through 34, so what I would ask you to do by, right now, by the way, is, is open your Bibles or swipe your phones or get out your iPad, whatever it is, and go to Mark chapter 10 so that you can follow along. But in these uh, three verses here, it's Jesus saying to his disciples in the last three chapters for the third time now, I need to go to Jerusalem where I'm going to suffer and die and then I'm going to be raised again. And the disciples just really don't get it. They just don't get it. But we need to remember that we're on this side of all of those events, so it's easier for us to understand that. Nevertheless, we have to study this in order to be able to see how the context is set up for the request of James and John. So in verse 32, it says that when and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, we talked about how at the end of Mark chapter 8, Jesus made the big turn from his ministry towards Jerusalem because he has a He has a mission, he has a purpose, and that's to go to Jerusalem and be crucified to save his people. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles." 
And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will arise. So again, this is the third time Jesus says, I am going to go to my unfair and unjust execution. And yet he proceeds unabashed because he has a mission and a purpose. And he knows that. He's going to go and do this no matter what. And his mission really makes little sense to a worldly understanding of life because we've described Jesus in Mark. Mark especially, said he is, he's the king. He is the king of the kingdom of God. We've described him that way, and yet he's a king on the road to the cross. He, he's not a king living for wealth or status or power or position or privilege. Instead, he chooses the cross, but that cross serves us. Jesus, who is richer in more ways than you and I could ever imagine, as the Son of God, used his riches, used his wealth, used his privilege, so that you and I, who are hopeless and helpless, could be made whole again and be reconciled to God and and, and be saved and delivered. And the reason we knew that is because of sin. You and I, in our natural state, we're actually born into this, the Bible tells us. Our natural state is sinful, and we sin. And because God is holy, that separates us from God. And so there has to be a way for us to be reconciled to a holy God. And and we can do that by spending eternity separated from God after we die. The Bible calls this hell. And I know that's challenging teaching for many people, especially in In such an enlightened day as the 21st century, I know that's very challenging for us, but that's one way that we can take care of our sin. We can pay for it ourselves by being eternally separated from God, or we can look at Jesus on the cross and understand that he sacrificed his holiness and his his life, and he became sin. He became our sin. He became that which is repugnant to God so that you and I might be able to have his holiness, his righteousness, and his justification as we stand before God. And if we place our faith and trust in him, we appropriate that to us. He he has fulfilled the law, so we don't have to. We we think about what it means to be a moral person, what it means to be a good person. We have to live a certain way. We have to live up to a certain law or a certain moral code, and we can't do it. Even the moral codes that you and I devise for ourselves, we can't do it. He's already fulfilled that law. He lived the perfect life, so we don't have to. That gets appropriated to us. Do we still sin? Yes, we do. Just ask my wife. Just ask me about her. We still sin, but yet God looks at us in Christ and says, fulfilled. It's finished. You fulfilled. He's paid the penalty of sin so that we don't need to. He's taken the wrath of God, the judgment for sin. His holiness demands that sin be judged. He's taken that so that we would be spared. Uh, there's a guy named Med Skeens. He's a, kind of a friend. Um, I know his son a little bit better who's younger than me. His son uh, has been a, a, a pastor in, in the city for some time. Med's in his 60s. Uh, when he was younger and my wife was younger, Med was my wife's youth pastor at North Phoenix Baptist Church. And, and Jackie remembers him very well and, and, and loves him. I follow him now on Twitter. And he tweeted something this morning that just, it was just so succinct and right to the point. He said, Jesus is the hero who actually dies for the villains. He sacrifices his life, the hero, so that the villains might have life and be made justified. 
And so you look at the cross and you think about all of these big life questions that we're always asking ourselves, you know, why is there evil? Why is there suffering? What's wrong with the world? What do I do about my sin? How do I manage my guilt? What, is it, what does it mean to have fulfillment in life? What is the purpose of life? Where, where does meaning in life come from? Uh, how do I know that God is okay with me? How can I be a good person? Every one of those questions actually gets answered at the cross of Jesus. But this next paragraph that Mark read, verses 35 through 45, again shows how the disciples who had been walking for Jesus now for about three years, they still struggle with this. They don't understand this gospel of reversal, this good news of of reversal. They don't like the cross. They don't don't understand a lot of his teaching. And, And we end up with one of the most challenging conversations that Jesus has with his crew. And so you heard him, you heard Mark read that. So James and John come to them and they make this request. And I won't read it again, but just follow along. We're going to spend a little bit of time on this because this, this takes a little bit of effort to work our way through to see all the moving parts and see what's happening. But those first three verses, 35 through 37, are just loaded. I mean, I could spend all day just picking out the application from those three verses. I'll take just a couple minutes to point out a few. For instance, Jesus just said to them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die unjustly. He just said that to them. And yet, as I read that, and as many other commentators have read that, have read that, James and John just heard this, and what do they do? They go to Jesus, and that the tone, the tenor of their request is kind of like Jesus says, I'm going to go and suffer and die unjustly, and they kind of go and they go, ah, that's a shame. What's in it for us? Isn't that kind of the way we behave sometimes? I mean, they went to the Messiah and said this to him. And, and then also notice how they tried to get a guaranteed answer before they even asked. They're coming to the Messiah, the Son of David, the Savior, the Son of God, the one who is filled with grace and truth, and they're trying to negotiate a deal. Be- before it even starts, and, and any of you who have children, any of you who have children, you, you know this tactic. You know this strategy. I, I want you to guarantee my answer before I ask it. And, and the funny thing is, of course, Jake said it, we're, we're just kids in, in a bigger body. Often when we pray, we go to God this way. We, we, we have those prayers where we go to God and we say, God, I'm going to ask you for something. And I really just, I don't need you to, to think, you don't need to think much. Don't spend any time on this. Don't think too hard about it. Don't contradict what I'm asking. I don't want you to answer with a no. I don't, even, I, don't even, I don't even think we should waste our time with you coming with a different plan on how I can achieve this. I've already figured it out. God, I just need you to get your mind and your arms around the way I want life to be and then bless that. And we do the same thing today. And then finally, once again, the disciples' understanding of Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God, again, is sorely lacking. Now, again, I, I have to cut them some slack. I'm on this side of the book of Revelation being written. It hadn't been written yet, okay? John hadn't written it yet. It was another 60 years before he'd write that book. So I can look at Revelation 21 and 22 and know that the kingdom he's talking about, in which those who are in Christ will ultimately reside, the new Jerusalem, that is a place where there is no sin, there is no power, there is no prestige and privilege and there's no status and there's no there's really no hierarchy god is god and then we are co-heirs with jesus we are lords under his lordship essentially it is a restoration of the beauty of paradise in genesis chapter 2 so so 
we really don't have that much to worry about if we really understand what it means to be in Christ and a part of the kingdom of God. We're all going to be lords under his lordship. But James and John are convinced that this, still convinced that this is an earthly kingdom. The Messiah who was supposed to come, their understanding was that they were, they were going to be an earthly king. They were, going to, they were going to reassert Israel's power and prominence and they were going to throw off the shackles of Rome. And Jesus, they felt, was going to be the king of that earthly kingdom. And they wanted to get their, their place established in that. And their understanding of in your glory, notice that their, their request says, when, when, do this for us when you come into your glory. Their understanding of in your glory is when Jesus sits on his earthly throne, ruling those who used to rule them. And, and sit, they say, oh, one sitting at your right, one sitting at your left. Those are positions of honor in today's uh, uh, vernacular, we might say the president has the vice president and his chief of staff or her chief of staff. Well, James and John want their stake. They're thinking ahead, but they're thinking ahead to a, the wrong kingdom, the earthly kingdom, but what they want is their stock options. They want their position. They want their power. They want their status, and of course, they're not going to leave this to chance. If they can conceive it and believe it, they will achieve it. That's what they're looking at here. This is what they're going for, and they want to do it before the others think of it. We better get up there, hurry, because they're probably thinking the same thing. They're going to make their future. We're told this all day. You're going to make your future. The first century version of the 21st century motivational stuff that we are bombarded with all the time. It's name it and claim it. In, in Christian world, we just go to God and name it and claim it. In the marketplace, we go and we name it and claim it. If you just have a dream that's big enough and you work hard enough. And, of course, the other disciples heard about it. And what was their response? Their response was, wow, James and John are really smart, and they're really good planners. They must have gone to that conference on name it and claim it. I'm so proud of how smart they are. No, they behave just like us. Hey, man, you took cuts. Somebody, somebody said, you know what this is? This is James and John going, I call shotgun. <laughs> and everybody's like, oh man, I wish I had thought of that first, you know? But what we really need to drive home here is the ridiculous irony of their requests. They said, they, they said we want this when you come into your glory, Jesus. Well, what was Jesus' greatest moment of glory? It was that's exactly right. Thank you, David. Thank you. I love participatory preaching. That's awesome. Yes, that's true. I, yes. That, that's, you're exactly right. Thank you. His greatest moment of glory was when he became sin for us on the cross. He says, do you really want that in your life? And a little more irony. There was somebody on his right and somebody on his left when he came into his glory. Who were they? Thieves and murderers. Thieves and murderers. Criminals. You cannot make this stuff up. I've heard many uh, great pastors and theologians say this, and I think it's true. You know, th there are no original stories in Hollywood. They're all just cheap knockoffs of the gospel. Um, Richard Hayes, a theologian, he has this perspective on this. He, he writes this. Mark's vision of the moral life is profoundly ironic. Because God's manner of revelation is characterized by reversal and surprise, those who follow Jesus find themselves repeatedly failing to understand the will of God. Therefore, there can be no place for smugness. 
If this narrative of reversal and surprise forms our sensibilities, we will learn not to take ourselves too seriously, and we will be self-critical and receptive to unexpected manifestations of God's love and power. And then you start to move into how Jesus uses this for good teaching, and you see that in verse 38, you see it in verses 43 through 45, he talks about, in 38 he says, do you really want this cup and this baptism? What does he mean by that? What, there's very symbolic language. Well, well, here you go. The cup is symbolic of God's wrath, his judgment on sin. And he says to these guys, you really want that? I'm going to go and do that. Do you really want that? And, and really, there's two ways that God's wrath is manifested in our lives. One of them we all experience, and one of them some of us will experience. The one that we all experience comes out of Romans 1, where Paul teaches that there's a created order, and when we sin, we violate that created order, and there are natural consequences to violating that created order, and it's not going to go well for us. Maybe not in the short term, but certainly in the long term. All sin eventually leads to death and destruction. That, that, that natural consequence for violating the created order, for sinning, is in fact God's wrath, but it's initiated by us. And we like to think that we're going to be the exception to that natural law order, but we're not. None of us are exceptions to that. The second kind of wrath, though, we find in Revelation chapter 20. That's the lake of fire, eternal torment. That's the one that, if you're not in Christ, that's the one that you get to experience. Those who are in Christ will not experience that. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to take that wrath, that Revelation 20 wrath on himself for his people, those who would believe in him. Now, his baptism then is the physical reality of the suffering and death that he will experience. So, so he's saying, you don't want the physical manifestation or the spiritual manifestation of what I am going to go through in your life. You don't know what you're asking for. Jesus speaks the truth when he says that. But here's the really challenging part of this, of this little narrative here. And this is, this is where we've got to slow down for just a couple of minutes and really try to see this. He says, but you will drink the cup and you will be baptized. Well, how? I thought you were going to go to do that, Jesus. How am I still going to participate in the cup and, and in, in the baptism? Tim Keller says, this is one of the, just get the metaphor here, this is one of the hard candy sayings of Jesus. There's a lot of Jesus' teaching, a lot of things that we read about Jesus in the Gospels that we kind of just blow by and we go, yeah, that sounds good, I agree with that, that's good, I like that, and we just kind of blow by it. But when it comes to something like this, many of us blow by it because we don't want to wrestle with it, but that's the last thing we should do. This is one of those things where we have to slow down and really let this thing sink in. It's like a piece of hard candy. First you have to unwrap it. Then you've got to take it and you've got to put it in your mouth and you have to let it dissolve. You have to wrestle with it. You have to ruminate on it. This is very challenging stuff. Here's what Jesus is saying to James and John and to the rest of us who are in Christ. He says, there is, in fact, a suffering, a tribulation, a purification, a sanctification that occurs in the life of a believer. It's, it's, it's becoming a believer in Jesus doesn't remove you from life, but in fact, many, in many ways, it immerses you more deeply into life because you also now have the mind of Christ so you can see things as they really are. 
And at times, this immersion into life and the struggles and the challenges and the suffering is going to be really painful and trying and challenging and uncomfortable and inconvenient and exasperating. And, and here are just some passages like um, James chapter 1. James is writing to some of these uh, exiles. And, and he says, hi, I'm James and I'm writing you. And then boom, he's right into it. He says, consider it all joy when you encounter trials of many kinds. And to listen to that sentence, consider it all joy when you encounter trials that word trials can literally mean tribulation, oppression, or temptation, challenges of any kinds. Consider it all joy when those come, and they're of many kinds. They're going to they're, they're be many different colors. Literally, the Greek says trials of many different colors, a variety of trials. Consider it joy when those come because if you're in the gospel, it's going to test your faith. And by testing your faith, it's going to result in something that you desperately want that is not a spiritual gift from God, but something you have to learn. That's perseverance. And that word perseverance can also be translated as endurance, patience, and steadfastness. It's all of those things. And those are things that we want. But we got to go. Here's Jake standing right here this morning. And he's saying, yeah, it's true. Working in children's ministry has helped to teach me patience. God didn't just give him patience as a spiritual gift, Jake had to go through the fire, the baptism of life, in order to be able to learn that, especially from a gospel-centered position. Paul writes it this way in, in Romans 5. He says, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And it's a hope that does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Listen to that contrast there. God pours his wrath on his son, and he pours out his love into us. That's the great exchange. That's the great reversal. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And then maybe Philippians chapter 3 is the best text to talk about this. Paul writes, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. That, that word uh, rubbish in Greek literally means excrement mixed with garbage. It's, it's, he's saying, this stuff has no worth compared to Jesus. I suffered the loss of it, but it was worth it in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, I can't, I can't make the law. I can't live up to the law, but rather the righteousness from God that depends on Faith, that which comes through Christ in faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and that I may share in his suffering, cup and baptism, becoming like him in his death, cup and baptism, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And by the way, all of this stuff is going to happen whether you're a Christian or not. Life is hard. The question really is, are you going to do it with Jesus and his power or are you going to do it without him? And then Jesus, at the end, in verses 43 through 45, he says, the way to this is through humility. It's through humility. Uh, he, he says, look, the greatest among you needs to learn how to be a servant of all. It's that first will be last, last will be first, reversal again. He says the only way to do through this is humility. Again, Philippians chapter 2. Paul teaches us on this. He just got done saying, listen, at the end of chapter 1, he said, listen, you need to live a life that is worthy of your calling in the gospel. And now here's what that looks like. 
And right at the beginning of chapter 2 and verse 3, he begins to explain further what it means to live a life worthy of the call of the gospel, where he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider everyone else better than yourself. And by the way, he's teaching this in the midst of a culture like ours that really doesn't value humility, but rather values the opposite of humility, pride. He's teaching this in the midst of a culture that says pride is the greatest virtue and and humility is actually a sin. And he's saying, no, humility is the way of the cross. Humility is the way of the kingdom. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, it's okay to look to your interests. I get it that you have interests, but you need to remember that everybody else has interests too, and those could collide, and you need to make sure that you submit your interests to the interests of others. He says, not, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Then he says, and here's how you do it. In verse 5, he says, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. Look at the world in reality the way Jesus did. Who, and then he gives us the example, who was in the very form, he was God, And yet he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to cling to selfishly. But instead he emptied himself. He humbled himself and became a man so that he could serve us through death by going to the cross. That is humility and that is gospel. Humility is the opposite of pride. C.S. Lewis has wonderful writings about this. He talks about how pride... The definition definition of pride is a complete anti-God state of mind. He says it's the chief of all sins. It is everyone's besetting sin. And it is the one sin through which every other sin gets manifested. He says the the only contradistinction that we have to that is this thing called humility. And it led to Ruskin to say, it's a fairly famous quote, to say that, he said, here's my definition of humility. He said, it's not about it's not, about a, it's not about a problem with self-esteem. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. That's true humility. And Keller, again, I know I'm pounding away here, but this is so important. He has really interesting insight here. He claims that you and I can never understand the magnitude of the cross of Jesus, what it really means until we embrace this humility. He says this is what James and John were wrestling. This is their problem. They didn't have humility. They were still stuck in pride. They were stuck in the cul-de-sac of pride. And this is a problem that plagues all of us. And then Keller writes this. At some level, your normal assumptions, your pride and egocentric way of thinking are blinding you to the truth. One prime example of this is worry. Naturally, if you love people, you're going to worry about them. But do you know we're constant worry comes from? This is that obsessive angst that some of us live with, just constantly under stress. You know where that comes from, Keller says? It's rooted in pride and arrogance that assumes, I know the way my life has to go, and God's not getting it right. Real humility means to relax. Do you see anything relaxed about James and John's request? Real humility means to laugh at yourself. Real humility means to be self-critical The cross brings that kind of humility into our life. James and John were thinking what you and I like to think apart from a humble humble gospel-centered worldview. And that is, if I can get power and control and status, and if I can have connections and networks and wealth and position, then I can have my way. And Jesus is the way to that now at this point. That's what they're thinking. This week, um, 
a lot of stuff, we spent a lot of time as a staff working on the new property that we're moving into, hopefully in, in February or March, at 33rd Street in Camelback. We, we took possession of the property a few weeks ago. Um, the, the, the people that were using and renting the property have moved out. We went over there and got the keys and, and started to really, really scrutinize the property and spent a lot of time there figuring some things out. Friday, we spent a couple hours meeting with the architect again, trying to really hone down the plans with what uh, we're going to do there. And, and it's not that I don't believe this is true here in this rented facility. It is. But... Looking at this privilege and this responsibility that God has given us in this property reminded me of the responsibility we have to this community. That, that we have a responsibility, as, as uh, James Davidson Hunter said in his, world, in his book, to change the world, that we, that we must have a faithful presence in our community. And that faithful presence is actually born out of an understanding of what God's really doing in Jeremiah chapter 29 in the Old Testament. And, now, let me just set the context for you. The, the year is 586 B.C. Jerusalem has been sacked now by the Babylonians three different times, 605, 597, and 586 B.C. And each time they've gone in there and they've, they've pretty much destroyed Jerusalem and then carried thousands and thousands of Jews back to Babylon 700 miles away and said, you need to live in the midst of us, your enemies, people who don't believe the way you, do, you believe. And by the, by the end of 585 B.C., the last sacking and the complete demolition of Jerusalem, there were close to 100,000 Jews living in Babylon in exile there. And God, through Jeremiah, goes to these people, and, he, and here's what he says. He says, here's what I want you to do in Babylon. I want you to seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. God carried them into exile. That's unbelievable. And he did it for a purpose. He was punishing them. Maybe. But maybe he was also bringing a community into the midst of the Babylonians that were going to transform the Babylonians in some way. And the Babylonians didn't like him. They treated him as second-rate citizens. They didn't believe the same thing. They thought Yahweh was a joke. They tried to oppress them. Yet God comes to his people and he says, humble yourself before the Lord and humble yourself before your enemies. This is hard teaching. Amen? It's Philippians 2.3 though. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. God says, serve your city. Serve your community. Love and help and pray for those who don't believe anything the way you believe it. Submit yourselves to them and love and serve and help them, even though they're different and they believe differently than you. The Babylonians believe completely different than the Jews. The vast majority of our outreach, our outward-focused ministries here at Arcadia is into communities that are primarily Muslim. They don't believe what we believe. We don't believe what they believe. Does that mean we walk away from our responsibility of serving them and loving them and helping them? Not if you understand what's going on in Jeremiah 29 or in Philippians 2 or in just Jesus' understanding of the world. Humility. And God says in Jeremiah 29, by the way, if you do this, something really cool might happen. As they prosper, you're going to prosper as well. You know, you raise their bar, your bar is going to get raised along with it. Now, that's not the reason we go to do it. That's a consequential result of the gospel. 
But now watch, completely different request and a completely different response. This is now Bartimaeus. Let me reread this to you and we'll unpack that and we'll be done. And they came to Jericho. Jericho is now like kind of the last leg of their, their journey back to Jerusalem. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting along the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, this is really interesting to me. In the synoptic gospels, that would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Bartimaeus is the only one who is named that Jesus heals. So there's something very significant going on here that, that he would actually get named. And also notice how the people treat Bartimaeus. They treat him as like the town nuisance, the community problem. The, he's what's wrong with everything, you know. It's just, they, they, they don't want him interrupting. He says, hey, Jesus, just come and spend a little bit of time. Shh, 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 Jesus is here. Shh, get Bartimaeus out of here. Put him in the back. Hide him. Quiet him down. Many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. The one that nobody paid attention to is specifically the one that Jesus pays attention to. It's another gospel reversal. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Isn't that an odd question? Isn't it obvious, Jesus? Hello? Isn't it, why are you asking? I'll get to that. What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, followed Jesus on his way. Bartimaeus gets what James and John did not get. Bartimaeus has insight. James and John had eyesight. I'm not saying that physical eyesight is necessarily bad. I, I like physical eyesight. It's a good thing, even with glasses. But insight is way more important. And, and comparing these two narratives helps us to understand that. Bartimaeus is actually better off at this point than James and John. James and John have already been so privileged to spend three years in Jesus' flock but they can't seem to nail down contentedness. Isn't that amazing? They've been with Jesus for three years. They never expected to have a life as wonderful as this. It's been unbelievable what they've seen and what they've been taught, and yet they're still not content. Is that not maybe a picture of the church today? Well, Jesus, you've done so much for us, but you know what? There's so many things still that we are lacking. So many things. James and John come to Jesus and they ask for extraordinary glory. They say, Jesus, you've done a lot for us already, but it's not quite enough. Bartimaeus, however, he comes and he says, I just want ordinary health. In humble trust, Bartimaeus does not ask for wealth, power, success, or status. He just wants to see. He doesn't want to be superhuman. He just wants to be human. Bartimaeus wants to go from being literally sidelined, he's on the side of the road, to being in the game. And he did. He got on the road and he went with Jesus. By the way, as I understand it, he's the first one that Jesus has healed in Mark who got to go with Jesus. It's very interesting. James Edwards, I love this pithy little quote from James Edwards. He says, The kingdom of heaven is not for the well-meaning, but for the desperate. And what Bartimaeus demonstrates to us is that the blind guy with no sight had way more insight 
than the two guys who had been walking with Jesus for three years. The man with two bad eyes sees more clearly than the two guys with two good eyes. And it all goes back to faith. That's the key. We bring absolutely nothing to God when we come to God. We don't bring any virtue. We don't bring any deeds. We don't bring any essential thing that he needs apart from us. We do bring one thing to God, and that's our sin. That's the only thing that we bring to him. But that takes faith to just come to a holy being and say, all I've got is my wretchedness. But in your love and grace and mercy, you're going to save me as a result of that. That takes faith. Faith is the indispensable element for our entrance into the kingdom of God. And Bartimaeus has that. He says, Jesus says to him, your faith has made you well. Well, how do we know it's faith? It's right there in the text. It's Bartimaeus is saying, he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That is a statement of utter faith. He says, Jesus, you're the son of David. That is a messianic designation. He's saying, Jesus, you're the Savior. You're the Messiah. He's saying to Jesus what it took Peter two and a half years to figure out with Jesus. He said, "You're, you're the Messiah. You're the Savior. That took faith. And then he says, have mercy on me. You don't say to somebody, have mercy on me, unless you have the faith that they can show you mercy. It is a statement of utter faith. And Jesus does come and he says, all right, come over here now. What is it you want me to do? Why would he ask this question? Well, there's two reasons. The the first one is this. It It is to allow Bartimaeus to, again, express that faith as a testimony to everybody who's watching. That's a beautiful thing there. He's saying, okay, I want people to hear, I want them to see this demonstration of amazing faith. But here's the second reason he does this. Bartimaeus had been treated pretty much his entire life as somebody who was subhuman, as a distraction, as as a social problem. By engaging him in conversation, Jesus is doing what he does best. He's treating him like a human being. He's showing that he has personhood. The most human you and I can be is when we lean into Jesus. The least human we are is when we lean into our idols and away from Jesus. He's He's slowing down and taking the time to not treat him as a problem, to not treat him as an oddity, to not treat him as somebody who's marginalized, but to say, you are a valuable image bearer of God and I want to treat you as such. And you think about Jesus' ministry. I mean, this guy was a rock star. He could have just kind of gone, healed, healed, and I'm busy, I'm, on my, I'm a rock star. Healed, healed, woo! A little shuck and jive, healed and healed, okay? He always slows down and takes time because he wants you to see he treats you as an image bearer of God. Insight is what Bartimaeus had, and it's way different than just seeing. Jesus says, you have eyes, but you can't see. You, you have eyes, you can see physically, but you can't see. That word see literally means you don't have any comprehension. You don't have wisdom. You don't have insight. You, you don't have what it takes to be competent at life. What we want is insight. It's the same insight that allowed Jesus to see that the cross, although it was horrendous, was the only thing that would save us. And it's funny, Jesus says to Bart, he says, go on your way, your faith has made you well. And we look at that and we go, oh my goodness, look, he's physically healed, he's been made well. But that verb translated, he has made you well, is from the Greek word sozo, which actually has more than just a physical element to it. It literally means you have been delivered. You've been delivered not just physically, but spiritually. You've been delivered into reconciliation with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ. So Bartimaeus 
not only received his sight, but he also began to follow Jesus on the road, which means he had insight. Do we have eyes, but we can't see? We can't comprehend? All through Scripture, starting in the Old Testament, it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. Not a frightened fear, but a reverential, awestruck, you are amazing and I'm not kind of fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of insight. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of comprehension. Literally, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of competence in life, it says. But that takes humility, and we need to submit to him. Submit to him because of what he's done for us on the cross. Let me pray, and Aaron's going to come and lead us into our time of response. God, that's what we desire today. We desire that humility that is in, in reality the strength to come to you and say, we are fallen and we need you. Help us to do that, please, Lord. Help us to understand that and help us to live by that power. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.